Hi, I'm Janet Deneith, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of our highlight conversations recorded live for our 2022 festival, which explored the role of the written word in upholding humanity's values and freedoms through our festival theme, Mamayu Hayuning Bawana, Uniting Humanity. So please settle in and let the magic of our 19th festival continue. Thank you so much for all turning out today for the Ubud Writers Festival on day one. Um, you know, we're so lucky to have, you know, a scholar of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies, a survivor of one of the worst prison systems in the world. But, you know, since she's come out, she's been this amazing commentator, you know, on podcasts, television, newspapers, you name it. You have to have basically a Google alert to keep up with what she's writing all the time when you're trying to background her for an interview. So please make her feel welcome. Kylie Moore Gilbert. So, before you went to Iran, you kind of had this, like, middle-class existence and, you know, house, you know, um, married, yada, yada, the suburban dream. But your, you know, your life came crashing down when you went to Iran for an academic conference and, you know, you spent 804 days in two Iranian jails. After you were freed in a prisoner swap, you... From what I've heard, on the plane home, you were jotting notes, trying to write, write, write. Why was writing this book, The Uncaged Sky, so important to you? Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. It's amazing to just see a full crowd here. I'm blown away. And um, thanks, Drew, as well, for, for hosting this session. Um, for those of you who've read the book will know, I guess, that writing and pens and, and just using my brain in some intellectual fashion was really, really important to me in terms of how I survived prison. And a ballpoint pen that I had stolen became my most treasured possession. And I was writing a lot when I was in prison at various junctures when I was able to have a pen and paper, but um, none of that survived when I came out of the prison. And um, I don't know, it was really, really important for me to have some sort of written record, some sort of testimony of, of what happened to me so I wouldn't forget it for my own sake but also it was important to me to draw attention to what Iran is doing um, not only just to me but to many 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 other people as well um, you know thousands upon thousands of Iranians innocent Iranians within that country but also foreign visitors to Iran too so having a record of of that was really important to me and it just seemed logical to just start writing it down and, and eventually became a book. Like you're the definition of an internationalist, like after you finished school you backpacked the world, you lived in Israel, you studied at Cambridge. How much do you think like this intellectual framework, your academic curiosity um, and life experience helped you survive that tumultuous prison experience? I think that's a really, really good point to make. I, it did help me mentally and psychologically cope with my ordeal because I was subjected to a lot of physical deprivation, solitary confinement, um, being locked in a small cell, first on my own, but then with a, a small number of other people, but you know, 23 hours a day locked in that cell, not being able to leave, um, terrible sanitary conditions, no access to medical care at certain points. So this kind of deprivation, it was all physical. It was your physical body. It was, you know, you, you, something you had to mentally grapple with. But f 
finding ways to entertain your brain and take your brain off to a different space was a really crucial part of survival. And I definitely think that having an intellectual curiosity and wanting to continue to learn and use my mind so, I, so it wouldn't waste and wither away, it became essential for me. And for me, one challenge was learning Farsi. I'd, I'd task myself with learning the language of my captors, learning to read and write as well as speak. And it took me quite some time to, to get to a point that I could communicate in Farsi, but having an objective and an aim that each day I would strive toward intellectually, um, it gave me a purpose. It gave me a, a reason to get up in the morning and to continue you know, struggling to survive. So it, I think it was actually really crucial. Mm. One of the real... What I really liked about the book was you really presented like the captors with nuance. They're three-dimensional characters. But, like, how hard was it to kind of find the line between portraying them as three-dimensional people and not presenting them in a way that sympathetically kind of atones them for their sins? Yeah, that was a challenge. And I don't think I was fully aware of wanting to do that when I was writing the book. But, you know, I was very cognizant of wanting to depict their, you know, their warts and all, their, their, their actual character because parts of my experience with my captors were positive. It wasn't all negative. Not all of them were horrible to me 100% of the time. Uh, some of them helped me in small ways, particularly some of the female prison guards that I had. Um, when I started to learn Farsi, I could increasingly communicate with them and form almost friendships with them in a way. And those friendships were super useful. I, I could get crucial information out of some of these guards. Um, Often I would be able to kind of bribe them or offer them a, an incentive to uh, transfer food to another cellmate in a, another inmate in a different cell, for instance, or um, procure something for me like face cream or you know some basic item that um, I was you know desperate for. So those relationships actually were really important, and a lot of these people I didn't view as evil or bad guys, you know, especially the, the underlings, not the guys at the top. They were just doing their job, and I pitied them in a way. Some of them, I, I got to know their background and, and their life story, and I pitied them. So I, I appreciated them, too, at times. So I wanted to kind of, I guess, yeah, show that nuance um, and not have it a kind of a black and white, good mm. versus bad situation and, and I don't see myself as the good guy either. I mean, I made many mistakes as well. Mm. So I did want to avoid setting up a dichotomy there with the book. Yeah, I mean, it definitely rings through in the words. I mean, you describe writing this book as cathartic. Um, given what happened to you was like deeply traumatic, um, you know, solitary confinement can kind of affect your memory and I think you've spoken a bit about that. Um, and given, like, when you came home, you had very little psychological support when you returned to Australia. What challenges did you face in the kind of the process of um, kind of working out how to write a faithful recollection, recollection of events? Because, you know, the writing is so observational. Yeah, I have a really sharp memory for most of the 804 days. The first month or two is a bit fuzzy in my mind and indeed I think I have several weeks of basically my brain just erased most of my memories um, or all of what happened in those first f 
few weeks in particular has kind of all mushed into one in my head and I can't discern, you know, whether that thing happened in week two or week four. Um, my, my sense of time has, has kind of shifted around in those... I think it was just such an intensely traumatic experience to be thrown into solitary confinement, into prison in a foreign country just without any mental preparation or any understanding about what was happening to me that my brain just couldn't process it. But after things settled down after the first couple of months and I came to understand the parameters of where I was and the rules and my surroundings and um, what my captors would do and wouldn't do to me, because at the beginning I feared all sorts of horrific things, um, my brain started to behave more normally. I, I guess I adapted to it better. And I started to try my hardest to retain as much detail as possible and record as much as I could in my mind. Um, which is easier said, well, it's not too too difficult actually because um, when you're in solitary or when you're in a cell that has very limited stimulation and, and very little happening um, each day, when something does happen, you kind of ruminate on it a lot and go over it again and again in your head, you know, a, a, an important conversation or an important meeting with an interrogator or someone. Um, so that kind of reinforcement um, when you have no other stimulation, I think led to me retaining more detail than I ordinarily would as well. Today, Iran is in turmoil and the, Islam the um, Iranian Republic is facing its biggest challenge since 1979. Um, I wanted to ask you, given you know, it's very hard to get reliable information through the news and you know, there are internet restrictions, my final question on the actual book is, uh, for people who haven't read it, how do you think it provides like vital context to what is happening now? What happened in the book happened, ended less than two years ago still. So it's the events that I recount in the book are pretty current, pretty fresh still. Um, so I think the regime that we glimpse in the book is the same regime today that is busy shooting innocent protesters on the streets and, and trying its darndest to put down this uprising that very realistically could develop into a revolution, and I hope that it does. So the kind of mentality, the kind of way that these people see the world is relevant both in terms of understanding why I was taken hostage and, and kept prisoner as an innocent woman for so long and their, their attitude and their approach to the people on the streets today in Iran demanding freedom, demanding gender equality, uh, demanding an end to theocracy. So I, I think my captors, the Revolutionary Guards, you know, they're the most hardline, hardcore uh, group within faction within the regime itself. And they are the ones who are on the streets today shooting people and arresting thousands of Iranians and throwing them in prisons similar to the prison I was in. And their approach, uh, I think, you know, as I illustrate in the book, it's, you know, informed by a lack of respect for truth, um, an, an interest in just violence and, and control um, at all costs, um, a very paranoid conspiracy theory-informed worldview. The, the conspiracies they're promoting right now about the protests, that this is all a foreign plot and an intrigue, you know, by foreign powers to destabilize Iran and all of the protesters are foreign agents and this kind of bizarre paranoid worldview I think really comes across in the book as well in, in how they 
saw me as a, a foreign visitor that they were trying to portray as a spy. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of parallel there because it, it happened so recently still and um, the same guys who captured me are the ones who are engaged in putting down the protests today. Let's talk about the trigger point for the protests, the death of Masa Amini, um, like, 40 days ago. You know, she's 22 from a, a regional town, an ethnic minority. Um, you know... Her hashtag is being shared around the world. People are shouting her name in the protests. And these protests aren't just happening in cities across the country. They're happening in conservative strongholds as well. What is it about this incident that has kind of sparked such fury? I think this was the straw that broke the camel's back. We've, we've seen incidents like this where an innocent young person has just been killed for no apparent reason due to the brutality of the regime. We've seen incidences like this for the last 40-odd years, and often they generate rage and anger amongst the populace, but this one, for some reason, sparked something bigger, and I honestly think it's because it comes off the back of economic turmoil, um, a, an understanding, or I guess a, the understanding that no nuclear deal or no JCPOA is going to bring prosperity to the Iranian people. Um, and, you know, that is largely the Iranian regime's fault. But before, I guess, Trump pulled out of the first nuclear deal, there was some sort of hope still in the country that the regime could be reformed and that if you had so-called reformists like Hassan Rouhani in power, um, maybe they could slowly, slowly open things up a bit more, um, slowly liberalise the, the system in Iran. Um, but... We've seen a wave of crackdown. We've seen the hardliners re-emerge on top, put paid to any of that, and the people no longer have hope that this regime can change, that the leopard will change its spots. They know that it can't, and there's a sense of desperation and hopelessness. There's no hope for the future. They, you know, the economic situation is degrading everybody. I mean, I think 40% of the population of Iran now lives below the poverty line, and it was half of that 10 to 20 years ago. So people are really hopeless and the brutality with which this regime operates is the only card it has left you know crackdown is and and violence is is all it can do to maintain its grip on power there's no other way even the elections the the managed authoritarian elections they used to have um it became clear that the regime was manipulating those you know we had the 2009 protests as well over the um, stolen elections and people have no faith in that anymore either. So there's no no other outlet other than, you know, mass violence and repression um, to keep the people, you know, under wraps and to keep the regime going. So this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, women in Iran in particular are tired of being told how to behave, what to wear, what, you know, they can and can't do, where they should sit, what professions they should enter. Um, how many children they should have, all of this stuff. They're, they're tired of that. And it's not really the Iranian way or the Iranian culture to have that Im imposed on them either. So I think also the feminist dimension to, to Masa Amini's death is important. I mean, she was killed by the morality police because of the clothes she was wearing. And, um, and that struck a chord with so many because so many people in Iran have that experience with, of being harassed by the morality police, including many men too, not just women. So um, I, I think it, it linked together a whole lot of grievances about this regime's behaviour at a very opportune moment 
in which there was just great hopelessness and dissatisfaction in general in the country and that was the spark that, that lit the current conflagration. Let's unpack a bit of that bit by bit. You brought up, you know, President Rouhani, who is arguably like the only moderate president. I mean, if you look at the history, you've got the Shah, uh, you know, a dictator, a monarch, the revolution happened, and then clerics and hardliners like Ahmadinejad and, and Razi. Um, my question to you is, is that the point we need to go back to? Is, is reform enough going back to that moderate period in Iranian history under Rouhani? It didn't work. It, 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 it was a failure. I mean, there was, even though Rouhani himself was so-called reformist, um, he didn't have any real power. The real power lies with the dictator. It lies with Ayatollah Khamenei and, and his unelected, you know, support group, including the Rev Guards, the Revolutionary Guards who surround him. Um, this guy's been in power since 1989 and has ruled with an iron fist has sought to game the system, um, I guess, divide and rule, in a sense, by playing off these different factions, reformists and hardliners and revolutionary guards and etc., playing them off against one another, um, I guess, in order to give the people some sense that their, their views or wishes could influence the regime. But overall, you've still got this guy at the top, the dictator, who's been in power for decades um, and hasn't shown any interest in reform or, or changing the nature of the regime itself or its ideology, which is very extreme. Um, so I, I think the idea of reform has died in Iran. Peop the people understand that this regime will never be reformed. And it doesn't matter if you have another um, more moderate cleric like Rouhani or whoever come back. Um, they understand now that the power does not lie with that person anyway. And, and based on dealing, like in your book, you kind of interact with this security apparatus. Um, my, my question is, how difficult is it going to be for the protesters to hold the line against these institutions that are so deeply entrenched in the judicial system and even, you know, like reform them because they are so deeply entrenched in the political fabric of the country? This is the challenge of all revolutionaries, right? Like, we haven't reached the point in Iran where we have seen institutional breakage. We've seen some faltering amongst some groups. For instance, there's been some videos of a small number of um, security forces, riot police, etc., putting down their weapons and joining the protesters, but in very small numbers. Um, more likely you have them refusing to do their jobs, refusing to go out and shoot innocent people, but not actively going over to the side of the protesters. So we have had some resignations from parliament, but the parliament in Iran is, in, is ineffectual as well. Um, we've also seen nationwide strikes in some key sectors like petrochemical, oil industry, um, university strikes as well. This could be crucial um, if you paralyse the country through... If you had a nationwide general strike, this kind of thing, um, you're really stopping the regime for getting, from getting on with business and very clearly illustrating that they no longer have absolute control over the country. So I think before you look at institutional breakdown, you have to, I guess, get to the point as a revolutionary in Iran where you um, can first start to bring some of those guys over onto your side. Um, right now, despite the, the violence of the crackdown, they're still out on the streets, they're still protesting bravely, you know, shouting incredible slogans, daring the security forces to shoot them, you know, and 
saying they're willing to die for this, which is just remarkable. Mm. Um, so we don't know where it's going to go. But, I mean, theoretically, if we did get to the point where you had to deal with some of these institutions and you saw some of them breaking up or fragmenting, it would be a big problem because they're, you know, obviously stacked with pro-regime um, officials and you can't kick all of them out because then you won't have a functioning country at all. So... If, if the revolution is realised, I mean, the, the spark has been gender inequity, women not wanting to wear, be enforced with a dress code, not being picked by the morality police and kind of inspected in a centre. You look at the bigger picture of Iran, like, as you kind of said in a previous answer, the economy is terrible, poor youth unemployment, droughts caused by political corruption... Does reform actually start with the economy before human rights? I mean, because it's just so many... It's a, such a, a gamut of problems that this country faced. Does it begin with fixing the economy? I don't know. I mean, I think fixing the economy would take a very long time and a lot of change um, because you also have this ingrained kind of endemic corruption within the system. The regime itself is very, very corrupt financially. Um, and you have groups like the Revolutionary Guards who really control huge sectors of, of the economy in Iran. Um, how do you dismantle those, those networks? Um, you also have the oil industry, which, you know, Iran has some of the biggest oil reserves in the world. And that is the main um, contributor to the government finances. So... That is hugely corrupt too, of course. Um, I mean, at least I guess Iran is blessed with plentiful resources. So theoretically, if you had some non-corrupt people in power, um, they could use that oil wealth to benefit the country and, and try to boost the economy and, and have a reset. Um, but I think it, it, you'd have to address human rights and, and people want freedom, right? So if we got rid of this regime, um, they would want some sort of free democratic entity, you'd have to have some sort of democratic election, um, you'd have to think about how you'd structure the country, there'd be so many challenges and the economy would be one of them. Um, but I think you'd have to address them all in parallel. So a lot of these protesters are ending up in the prisons that you spent so much of that time, they're being, I, I imagine, subjected to you know, solitary confinement, um, psychological torture from interrogators. Um, what did, like, you know, if you could speak to one of these young people that is ending up in that system, like, what advice would you give to them? I would tell them to have hope and to not, you know, think that their life is over once they've been thrown in prison. There is a lot of bravery within the prisons. I mean, we saw only a week and a half ago that Evan Prison was actually set on fire, possibly by a prisoner uprising. And in one ward of Evan Prison, the, the men there managed to break out of their section and break into another part of the prison and people were launching sit-ins and protests. And so, uh, you know, when you get thrown in prison in a place like Iran, particularly right now when people are protesting and there's so much chaos, it's certainly not the end of the story. And um, I think a lot of people are hopeful, in, including families of prisoners in Iran today, are very hopeful that this regime will come down and they will open the prisons and let all of these innocent people out. You've spoken in interviews about the importance of kind of clawing back dignity and integrity in, in an environment where you were completely dehumanised. How did you do that? 
I don't know if I entirely did that. I mean, it's it's really hard to feel dignified in a prison um, when you have no control over anything. I mean, at the beginning, I, I had no control over my own toothbrush or, you know, you... I wasn't in a situation where I could even decide what time I woke up in the morning, what time I would go to sleep at night, um, largely how I would spend my time. Everything was taken away from you, and that's dehumanizing. Um, I had a, a number, and they would sometimes refer to me as, you know, 29. My, my prison code was 97029, and they would be like, hey, 29, go do this. And, and, and it's, it's very obviously dehumanizing. You, you've been reduced to the level of a number. And um, and so finding some fleck of dignity amidst all that is, is really hard. And um, at times, I just felt like I had none. Um, but I, I do think asserting myself and fighting back, struggling, not just blindly accepting everything my captors told me, but picking myself up and, and finding my own voice and asserting myself and resisting my captors did restore some measure of dignity to me because I felt like I wasn't just a victim letting people do things to me, but I could have a say in influencing my own fate as well. Earlier you mentioned the fire that ripped through a ward of Evan Prison. Like, this was your cage, yet so many, you made so many friends there and, you know, they were often your lifeline, the people that helped you. So what the hell was it like seeing it completely on fire? It was confronting. I mean, we th there was a, there's a lot of us around the world, former inmates of Evan Prison, and and also family members of current political detainees and current foreigners who are held in Evan Prison, and we were all frantically messaging each other and and watching you know Twitter and and Iranian social media for videos and clips and information and updates because um, we were all frantically trying to ascertain the welfare of our friends, of our loved ones. We, everyone was speculating where the prison fire had broken out, which ward, which area, which parts of the prison were endangered. There were so many clips and videos being posted, you know, of huge fire um, going up into the air and also sounds of shooting into the flames by the security forces. So we were frantic and, and terrified that the ward or the area would be one that we had our, our loved ones um, imprisoned inside. And um, it took about 24 to 48 hours for word to start to filter out um, as to who had been impacted, which area had been impacted, and also that many of the foreign prisoners, very quickly when the fire broke out, had been rounded up by the prison guards and taken off to a completely separate area for their own safety. And that would have been because they were considered to be of high value. Um, that, you know, they're used as bargaining chips. They're used as uh, ways of extorting their, their home country to get something in exchange by the Iranian regime. So the regime wouldn't want them to perish in a fire. They're, they're too valuable. So that's why they rounded them up and took them elsewhere. Um, so once that picture started to emerge and people started to be able to call from the prison outside and say, hey, I'm okay, um, yeah, there was a great sense of relief. Mm -hmm. and, and just to expand on the whole crisis in itself, I mean, we're seeing girls, young girls on TikTok kind of using that as a tool for protest. We're seeing these brave acts of defiance by sports people and 
little old ladies taking their scarf off on, on screens and, like, emboldening it. Like, as an outsider looking in and knowing what Iran's like, do you look at that with joy or do you look at it with dread because of the possible consequences that are going to face these people, potentially? I, I don't look at it with dread. I mean, you, you do worry, like, when you see some of these really brazen acts, especially by young children, even. You think, oh, my God, what could happen to them if, if their identity is discovered? Um, I'm just in awe of them. I think the people of Iran right now, the bravery that you're seeing on the streets and people um, doing acts that they very clearly know are going to result in repercussions, they're going to get arrested, they're going to get imprisoned, um, they might even lose their lives. But they do them anyway. And that's remarkable. I, I applaud their courage. I mean, I, I hope I would... I don't, don't think I would be able to find the courage to to be so brave had I be in their situation. And, and I think just this is why the regime hasn't been able to keep a lid on the protests this time. Because how do you, you know, when you have a, a group of schoolgirls who are underage um, and, and they've taken off their hijabs and they're shouting down the local militia commander who's come to the school to teach them how to, you know, behave properly. This is a very dangerous guy. He's got weapons. He's got a whole gang of, you know, thugs behind him, and and yet he's being shouted down by a group of fifteen-year-old schoolgirls. Mm. I mean, it, it's a it's a problem. How does the regime grapple with that? Even they, you know, they might kill a couple of them. They're not going to kill all of them. They they they're children at the end of the day. So, um, the violence is is not as effective as it used to be when coming up against such acts of bravery. And I just think it's remarkable. We've seen in, like, Ukraine and Myanmar, civilian populations taking on despots and having to dig their feet in for the long fight. Like, despite the, you know, um, the regulations that impose horrible things on women, they, they are going a lot to universities. There are political movements. You're confident that revolution is possible. What are the kind of ingredients within this, like, movement that you think can kind of really, like, topple them? I think one of the most important factors that we're seeing here that we haven't seen in other uprisings in Iran is the sense of unity amongst different ethnic groups, different regions, and different levels of religiosity. So it's not just the secular people. It's religious people, it's traditional people, people of all ages, but also all ethnicities, because Iran is very, very ethnically diverse, and you have a kind of a a Persian majority, Shia Islamic majority, um, very much forcing their way of doing things on groups like the, the Kurds, the Baluch, um, Turkmen, Azeri, Arab, uh, largely living in the periphery of Iran in, in various regions on the border with other countries. But very, um, you know, I, I think it's about 50-something percent Persian and 40-something percent all other ethnic minorities. So we're looking at huge diversity within the country. And a lot of these ethnic minorities, particularly the Kurds, the Arabs, the Baluch, you know, they have long-standing grievances. They've never liked this regime. They've always felt to be repressed by them. They've never been on board with the Islamic Republic. And often the regime has kind of divided and conquered and played off the Kurds, say, as successionists, as Sunnis, as not proper Iranians, and, and tried to divide them from the demands of the, the other groups who might also want freedom and democracy, but keep them separate from the Kurdish demand for democracy, for instance. 
um, and couch any Kurdish uprising as a specifically ethnically Kurdish problem that isn't relevant to the rest of the country. But now we're seeing, you know, I incredible unity. I mean, Masa Amini was a Kurd. Um, that doesn't matter. You've got the entire country erupting in protest. Every ethnic group, every everybody's calling for the same thing, which is an end to this Islamic Republic dictatorship and freedom, freedom of speech, democracy, freedom to wear what, what clothes they like, freedom to speak, freedom of, of the press, everything. Um, they're united in that demand. And the regime hasn't succeeded in fomenting those ethnic tensions or those ethnic divisions, which might have earlier restrained Masa Amini's death to being a Kurdish issue alone. And I think this is really dangerous for the regime. They've known all along they need to divide and rule. And the fact that everyone is so united, I think, is really, really important. So you've, you've just said that a huge cohort of people from different walks of life are part of this protest movement. My question is, where are the leaders? I mean, in, um, in many interviews, you've said the best and brightest people are behind bars in Evan. Like, does it take, for this country to be steered in a good direction, does it take someone from behind the bars to emerge? Who is the leader that fills that political vacuum? This is a 21st century movement, as we saw in, in the various Arab Spring uprisings, as we've seen in other, um, you know, revolutions in other parts of the world that are largely internet-driven, um, or at least the internet as an, or mobile phone messaging as, as a method of communication among protesters is a central component. Um, they've all remained leaderless and broad in that sense. And I think it's deliberately so. It's a product of the fact that these regimes have deliberately prevented any opposition from emerging in any formal capacity ever. There are no political parties. Anytime even a religious cleric or somebody within the system gets too powerful, they'll get rid of him too. Um, anyone who could emerge as a potential rival to the regime is eliminated. So you, you have a system where most of the rivals are in prison anyway, as Drew mentioned, but also um, people know that they shouldn't raise their head above the parapet. So a lot of the people, there, there, there are leaders out there, but we don't know who they are. The people running some of these huge social media campaigns, the people who are within the country, I'm, I mean, people who are um, coordinating protests and driving people to the streets in a particular place at a particular time, they're all nameless. They're faceless because it's a survival tactic. Um, and this kind of leaderless revolution, it's a phenomenon of the social media age. That being said, um, there are a number of people in prison who would have the widespread respect of the people of Iran should they be let out of prison at some point and be allowed to stand for election, for instance, that I think could be a unifying presence. And also people in the diaspora who've been campaigning and struggling for a free Iran for so long um, potentially might go back to, to Iran if this regime was removed and, and could also emerge as a you know, form a political party or, or become a leader as well. So there are prominent people, but I think for for a survival, you know, for the survival of this movement, they must remain nameless and, and largely leaderless um, in the current moment. You mentioned the diaspora. I mean, we've seen in places like Germany to Bondi Beach, huge, like, protests. Um, I'll talk a bit more while you drink. <laughs> um, so, so um, you know, you look... And these movements say, you know, the West should 
intervene, get involved. But I mean, they've America put Iran in part of the Muslim ban, part of the axis of evil. Trump sidled up to Saudi Arabia. He screwed the nuclear deal. He, you know, got so much political capital from, you know, portraying Iran as this rogue state enemy. Can we trust Western nations when it comes to intervening, particularly as, you know, America is very shaky at the moment and if you have a moderate government come in and you have, like, someone who is into Trumpism or is a conservative Republican, they could, you know, shiv him again. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I don't think Iranian people want a direct intervention by Western powers. What they've repeatedly said is they want Western powers to stop backing up the regime. So, and that might seem incongruous in that we know, we, you know, as you mentioned, Drew, like um, Iran was an axis of evil country under George Bush. Uh, and Trump also had a very hard-line approach to sanctioning Iran and, and killing Qasem Soleimani and all of this. But the Iranian people largely see all of these backroom deals that happen, including the JCPOA nuclear deal, um, as propping up this regime when it's teetering. Um, and it's in the West's interests, but they don't see it as being in their interests. Many, many activists, human rights people um, from Iran say this. Uh, if there was a new nuclear deal signed, you would see hundreds of billions of dollars of frozen assets and um, oil revenue flow to this regime in Iran at a time when it is really, really weak and looking like it's on its knees. So it would be a lifeline for the Iranian regime, for the US and, and Europe and other countries to unleash this, you know, this flood of money all of a sudden um, if a new nuclear accord was arrived at. And a lot of Iranian activists say that's not in our interests, you know. We, we don't want um, this regime to have nuclear weapons, but you're, you're actually propping them up by signing all these deals with them. Um, likewise, some of the prisoner swap agreements that have seen cash for hostages, and we're talking like billions, um, you know, the, the one that the UK conducted, which saw the release of two... Um, British citizens for 400 million pounds worth of unfrozen debt money. Um, that pales in comparison to a few years ago when I think it was um, two or three billion that the US sent back to Iran in exchange for a journalist and, and four or five other Americans being held in the prison there. And, you know, they, the people see these kinds of backroom deals as just a way of, you know, keeping the regime going and giving it money and funds to keep going. So. I think they would prefer America not to get directly involved, but they don't want them to undermine the cause either by giving the regime money or doing anything which could prop them up and, and offer them a lifeline. Mm. You, you just brought up this issue of hostage diplomacy and you've been quite um, outspoken about it since being in Australia, like an advocate for doing more about it. I, I see the technical, like, why you're against it, obviously, but, like, when I hear you speak, it kind of feels like there's, like, an emotional connection behind it as well. Did you kind of feel like a pawn? You were traded for three terrorists who botched an attack in Thailand who, like, you were swapped, they came back, got flowers around mm -hmm. themselves. You know, little kid watching that on TV gets inspired to commit violence again. Is there an emotional dimension to why you were so outspoken on hostage diplomacy? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I feel... I don't feel guilty, but if one of those terrorists would go on to do something bad, I would feel somehow linked to that, right? Like, 
these guys should still be in prison. They they tried to. They had a, there was a bomb plot. They were trying to blow up. Um, I think the Israeli ambassador in Thailand, and they're free. And as you said, we met at the airport with garlands of flowers because of me. And you know, I, more needs to be done by Western governments to stop this practice from happening because it's actually on the rise. Countries like Iran and Russia and North Korea and China have figured out that it's an easy way to get a concession out of the West or to get leverage with a particular country over something and over a completely unrelated issue. You know, it could be an unpaid debt or it could be frozen money. And, you know, the Iranians right now have a lot of billions frozen in South Korea. The South Koreans froze the, that, those money, uh, that money at the request of the US and they're taking all sorts of people hostage and making requests that the Europeans intercede or the Americans, um, you know, back off from their request to freeze that those funds so they can get the South Korean money back, you know, and it, it, it works. It pays dividends, unfortunately. The international community hasn't come together to sign a convention or a treaty or some form of cooperation to prevent this from happening. And everyone goes it alone. Each country does their own thing, reinvents the wheel each time. And there's no mechanism to disincentivize it. And in fact, every time you do a deal with a hostage taker, you give them a further incentive to do it again. And I'm particularly against cash for hostages or money for hostages because I think that's just such a, an incentive, particularly for a cash-strapped regime. Um, but also prisoner swaps. I mean, I think some people just should not be swapped. Th there's a guy in um, Sweden who was convicted of crimes against humanity for the massacre of thousands of innocent political prisoners in Iran in the 1980s. The Swedes arrested him under universal jurisdiction laws. And he's got, I think, a life sentence. His name is Hamid Nouri. The Iranians went and, and kidnapped a few Swedes and are now trying to extort the Swedish government for these two poor innocent Swedish people to get this guy back. And he'll be treated with garlands of flowers too. And he's a mass murderer. And you have to draw the line somewhere, you know. Um, but then what do you do? There's two, two or three innocent lives at stake too. The innocent Swedes who have been kidnapped for no reason. So it's just such a thorny issue. And I think a lot of thinking needs to go into how to disincentivize this because it really is on the rise. And it's a big international problem that nobody seems to want to tackle. Just based on what you've just said, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, like as a foreign correspondent that travels to places like Africa and stuff, we are living, like Australians are blind to it, I feel, we are living in the age of authoritarianism and China is the moral compass of so many countries and, you know, Myanmar's a fantastic example, same as Cambodia. You know, some of the things that you're pushing, like Magnis Magnitsky, the, sorry, I'm a bad pronunciation, but the Magnitsky laws and the, um, you know, like expelling diplomats and... Um, does it really matter or would they wear those things as like a badge of honour saying I was banned by this country, hurrah, hurrah? Like, I just kind of feel with this sliding authoritarian we're seeing in Africa, Latin America, yada, yada, I fear some of these solutions which I think are great will not work. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. They have to be more than symbolic. You know, some of these things are, are symbolic. Oh, let's sanction this guy, sanction that guy. That person's never going to leave Iran or they're never going to leave China anyway. Um, they're already known to be involved in human rights abuses. Australia, for instance, sanctioning them is going to have no impact. And maybe they would wear it as a badge of honour. Um, but I do think the financial dimension of it can be used much better. Because authoritarian regimes, a lot of the top officials... 
they don't want to keep their money in that country. They keep their money in Switzerland. They keep their money in Europe, in, in North America. And they funnel it through money laundering schemes and via proxies. And often they send their children to study in the West. And then their children funnel that money through. They buy property. They buy assets. They want to keep their, their ill-gotten gains somewhere that is perceived to be more safe than in an authoritarian regime where, you know, if they fall out of favor with the ruler and need to flee, they've still got their pot of gold you know, in a Western country that they can draw on. And the Chinese, I mean, it's well known that, you know, that a lot of top Chinese officials have done that. They've parked their money abroad. And the Iranians are the same, the Russians are the same. Um, so I think going after some of that money and also visas for family members and for other associates of some of these guys, cronies who, um, you know, a lot of them, thousands. I mean, it's it's surprising just how many of these guys live in the West, have children in the West, or enroll in Western universities, etc. Um, it's all connected, and it would actually hit them, I think, and send quite a strong message if we froze some of those funds and assets in our countries and banned some of those um, hangers-on family members and others who are happily living in the West um, from from entering as well. That I think would have a real impact than rather just throwing, slapping sanctions on, on a top official who's never going to leave that country anyway. Kylie, a lot of like this advocacy that you've been doing, I, I think you read, said in The Age, it comes from a place of cold rage. Like, how do you ensure that it doesn't manifest into something like unhealthy? Oh gosh, I mean, it might, maybe it already has, who knows, like, I've, I, it's, it's a struggle, yeah, sometimes I do get very angry and I guess it's part of processing what's happened to me and trying to move on from it. Um, I'm very engrossed in the protests in Iran today, what's happening there, I'm w constantly watching it and following it on Twitter and I do have to remind myself that it's not healthy to get that sucked into it, um, that I need to recover from my ordeal too and... Um, yeah, I, I, I'm cognizant of that, of not trying not to cross that line into just becoming a mad, crazy, angry lady. Mm. Um, but it's a process and it's a journey I'm still on, so mm. I hope I won't end up there, but it's, it is a risk, yeah. Be because, like, when you read the book and, you know, you see what has been written in the newspapers about, you know, marriage and breaking down and stuff, you have overcome, like, a gauntlet of problems. I mean, Bali's a pretty spiritual place. I wanted to know, like, how do you deal with a big problem? If someone has, like, do you have reserves of resilience? Are you spiritual? Um, are you pragmatic? How, like, how, when these big problems, you know, like disappointments in the jail and, and so forth, how do you deal with it? I don't really know. I, I don't think I'm a particularly spiritual person, but, you know, in prison you do get closer to that side of things you know a lot of people find god or find religion in prison you do need something that will help you make sense of what's going on and a source of comfort as well um but since coming out in a way a lot of issues just feel like first world problems and everything pales in comparison to surviving prison so i'm still in that phase and, and it's it is fading away and i have to pinch myself sometimes and say you know why are you getting worked up about this little insignificant thing when you know like come on have some perspective but um certainly at the beginning a lot of issues and problems i had upon coming home they i just they were nothing you know they were nothing compared to where i'd come from so i had that yeah that perspective um and I think that helped me grapple with a lot of it. 
my last question before we throw open to the floor is, like, in the book, your world was so small, and since you've come out of prison, you've, you know, you've come here, you've done heaps of writers' festivals, gone to, you know, a music festival in Byron Bay, you know, your world is big. Like, are there times where, like, freedom is overwhelming, like a culture shock? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yes, I do think, certainly in the first year since I was released, I did feel freedom to be overwhelming at times. There's a certain comfort that we humans have and it's somehow programmed into our psychology that when we're in a very ordered environment that everything is predictable and there's routine and we know the parameters and there's nothing unexpected, we get a sense of comfort from that. And when that's blown apart and everything's unpredictable, we get anxious and nervous. And I certainly had that experience when I was first released that too much freedom just freaked me out and I, I became paralysed and indecisive. I wasn't able to decide what I wanted to do because there were too many options and I would have almost preferred someone to just come and tell me this is what you're doing and then I would have gone and done it. So, yes, I think that can be a challenge but over time I, I'm, my brain's readapting to normal life again and I'm grappling with that easier and easier. Well, thanks for the chat. I'll throw it open to the floor. We've covered a lot of terrain. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Does there, um, please raise your hand and uh, I think there's a microphone that will come round. When you were in prison, did you feel supported by the Australian government or did you feel alone as far as diplomatic advances as far as diplomatic assistance was concerned and so far as you felt that people cared here in Australia? Thank you for that question. Um, that, is a, that is a difficult one to answer. I, I did feel alone a lot of the time and I had no real comprehension or sense that anybody in Australia or anywhere else in the world knew what was happening to me or cared or you know, my situation became public one year after my arrest and whilst I had some awareness that it had been reported in the media, I didn't know the extent of people who were campaigning for me or who cared about me or who wrote articles about me and journalists. You know, I had no idea and I spent a lot of time feeling very alone because my access to information was so restrained. I, you know, I, I very rarely saw the embassy for, for large stretches. I, I, I was banned from consular assistance as a punishment for, for some time, for nine or 10 months. Um, so I, I didn't know what the government was doing, if anything. And certainly in the first year or so, I felt they were doing nothing. And uh, it was, yeah, I, I was quite hopeless. Uh, but they did do a lot for me in the end. I mean, they pulled off this remarkable prisoner exchange deal involving Thailand um, as well as I Iran, and they they sent an envoy over to negotiate directly with my captors, which was what got me out. Uh, I think DFAT and the government spent a lot of time kind of going through the motions and going through the, the correct diplomatic channel, but not talking directly to the people who actually had the power or, or who had kept me hostage. Um, so once that phase was exhausted and they actually decided to go direct to the source, they were very effective. 
So, and I'm, I'm very grateful to the government for that. I mean, I'd still be there today if they, they didn't step in and get me out. So, you know, I, I have criticised the government and uh, there are a lot of things that they could do better, a lot. And we have other Australians right now who are innocent people in prison abroad in many countries, you know, in Iraq, in Iran, in China, in Myanmar. And I do think that we need a better approach um, from an institutional level about what to do about these arbitrary detention cases. But um, overall, I, I'm very grateful to the government for getting me out. And they did follow through in the end and, and you know, come up with a plan. We've got five minutes left, so maybe two more questions, hopefully. Yeah. Anyone? There's one there. Thank you, Carly, for your talk. I think the mic is off. You turned it off, sorry. No, oh. Just oh, oh, it's not me, it's the mic. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you for that and thank you for your inspirational view of the Iranian people, which is really quite wonderful to hear. I've been a refugee lawyer with Iranians for over 30 years. And oh, yeah, wow. they pretty are inspirational. Now, you've got the, the tumult in Iran at the moment. There are a lot of Shia communities in the region, in Iraq, in Syria, well, Afghanistan, um, and the, they're under oppression too. Is any of this revolutionary ferment going across the border? Are people picking it up? And this is the more negative aspect. Are any of those leaders likely to intervene maybe on behalf of the Iranian religious police and the mullahs? Yep. That's a good question, actually. We, uh, yesterday, there were reports that the Russians were threatening to intervene, <laughs> which is, um, you know, you wonder how does Russia these days even have the personnel or the ability <laughs> to intervene anywhere else. But, um, you know, the Iranians have been supplying drones, very effective kamikaze drones, to the Russians in the war in Ukraine. And I saw reports yesterday the Russians are going to help with training um, Iranians as, as to putting down protests and securing crowd security, crowd control, i.e. how to repress their people even more than they already are. So I, I hope that that doesn't happen, but Russia seems to be um, the main culprit in terms of some external intervention. Um, the, the countries around Iran have largely kept out of it. I think because of the Kurdish issue in Iraq, um, you might see, because traditionally the Kurds of Iraq have been against the regime in Iran. Um, sorry, the, the regime in Iran has helped sponsor the Kurds in Iraq against the regime in Iraq. Sorry, I'm getting confused. Um, so you might see some of that be drawn in. Um, but I think more likely is if there is a you know, have, you know, if it actually happens that we, we see a revolution in Iran, um, you might see some of those officials fleeing to neighbouring countries. Um, and Afghanistan is an interesting one because there are a lot of links between Iran and Afghanistan, linguistic ties as well as religious ties, and the border there is very porous. So you've also got the Taliban who are sort of supported by the Iranian regime in a strange way. So it's a very weird relationship. Um, and, you know, with further attacks on the Hazara Shia in Afghanistan, maybe less so now. Um, but I think there's been a lot of solidarity protests before this movement erupted. 
solidarity of the Iranian women for the Afghan women, you know, after the Taliban emerged and um, prevented them from going to school, forced them all back into their homes, etc. So you could see perhaps if there was a successful movement in Iran, you might see some spillover of that into Afghanistan, given the, um, the you know, descent of vast segments of that population to being ruled by the Taliban again. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it'd be very interesting to watch and see what happens, I think. But in terms of intervention, I, I think the Russians would be the main culprit, if anybody. Last question. Can't see. Thank you. Does it work? Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing your story. Um, so I work in journalism, and I was wondering what you think uh, journalists, maybe especially journalists in the West, should do to uh, support your or cases like uh, you, like hostage cases and uh, prisoners in Iran. That's a great question too. It's really, really hard for journalists because I've heard this from many. Often somebody is arrested. The government, the Australian government, the New Zealand government, whichever government may be, puts a lot of pressure on journalists not to report the story. And you know, in my case, after a few months of my arrest, Australian journalists knew that I had been arrested and the government very much put pressure on them to stay mum, keep quiet, and they always use the excuse of you're going to endanger the person if you report it. And as a responsible journalist, of course you're not going to want to endanger somebody by, by writing a story. So it's a really, really tricky, fine line to walk. I mean, journalists don't like being dictated to by a government department as well. They like to determine what stories they publish and when as well. Um, and I do think there needs to be more critical thinking around some of these cases. If the government is claiming that that person will be damaged in prison, what's the evidence for that? Is there any precedent? Are there any other examples of people who, for instance, if, if a state, if a country takes someone hostage, are there examples of people who've been harmed in prison or whose cases have become more complicated because they've been in the media? Or rather, is there evidence to the opposite, that the media can actually help that person, can ensure better prison conditions, a fairer trial for that person, and puts pressure on the home country of that person to do something to get them out. So there's like very clear kind of, um, there's a debate there, and, and there's a tension there between some of these issues. And I think journalists should critically examine some of that and question the government's motivations sometimes in, in putting a, a lid on everything because often it is in the government's interest to do so, but their, their claims that it's in the detainees' interests are often suspect, in, in my view. On that note, please thank Dr. Kylie Moore-Gilbert for this session. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. So, thank you, Drew and Kylie. Um, I'm sure if some of you are interested to go and ask and speak more with Kylie, you do not mind if they ask you some more questions. Yeah. Um, anyone of you who would like to go and ask more questions with, to Kylie, you can probably go to your left in our green room because this whole area needs to be clear for the next session. Yeah. But uh, for your information, uh, Kylie is going to speak as well tomorrow in Indus at 4.30 in this main program sessions uh, entitled What are the Roots of Radicalism? If anyone is interested to go and find out more. 
Nah, unfortunately not. <laughs> yeah, we drew as well. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much. And let's put our hands one more for a round of applause for Kyle and Drew. The next session here would be at 2 o'clock. Uh, the main program session, where is Indonesian art going with Joel Topslet, Aaron Sito, and Miss Dewi. Right. So thank you very much, everyone. And please enjoy your, the rest of your Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You can also yeah, remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ubud Writers Fest. And then don't forget to use your hashtag UWRF2023.